a mixie among the reeds. A midnight mixie waded out and wriggled his pale white toes. This inky pool makes starfire cool to the touch of my pale white toes. With dainty digits he dabbed the dark and blinking shimmers of fire and watched the ripples shake the skies, lapping his toes in the mire. Kings have killed for lesser thrones than this my fiefdom grand, for who but I can claim to own the stars on which I stand? To wit to whom from above the pool an unseen owl agreed. The mixie darted out of sight and sung among the reeds. Welcome to A Thousand and One Good Nights, a new podcast about the stories behind bedtime stories. Turn the pages with two new dads, one a psychologist and one a book editor, as they try to understand the nighttime ritual of their foreseeable future. Dr. Matt Meehan, welcome to the Thousand and One Good Nights podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, of course. Um, let me give a real quick uh, intro here. Dr. Meehan is a teacher at the Height School in Washington, D.C., where he teaches history and literature. And he also works for Hillsdale College's Washington, D.C. program, in addition, of course, to being a children's book author. Uh, he's recently published his book, Mr. Meehan's Mildly Amusing Mythical Mammals. And he's on the podcast to talk to us about the book and uh, I guess just sort of children's books in general. So did I miss anything, Matt? Uh, that sounds good. I mean, I'm father of uh, a bunch of gaggle of mythical mammals uh, of my own. <laughs> um, yeah, I live in Maryland. Well, I think it's uh, fitting that, that you wear so many hats uh, professionally because I feel like the book itself does a lot of different things. So even in trying to introduce it or, or sum it up um, is <laughs> a little bit of a challenge. But I think, at, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think at the, the, the base level, it could be described as a, a child's alphabet book or a collection of curious creatures. So you've got, you know, each letter introduces a new uh, mythical mammal from what the Ango grab graba gunko lunctus. Is that if that's if that's <laughs> yeah. correct? Or yeah, I warned parents. Bit, right? I, I warned parents that humility is required for the first one, right? No, Ango I mean, has a name that most find unctuous. No, that's right. Yeah. So I mean, if you're not, um, I, I would say that if that humility is a necessary tool to any parent who, who's reading children's books. That's, that's one of the the chief lessons that I learn, <laughs> kind of on a, on a nightly basis. But uh, you know, not all of them are as as uh, challenging, but but you know the blog or the jargon talky or the the dally, um, you know all the way to the the Z lion, you know at the at the end. Um, but uh, it's not just sort of a collection of uh, poems about whimsical creatures. It's also sort of a an Easter egg hunt for the classically educated. <laughs> there's a lot of references and and different styles, and there's also a, a plot to it, which I think is one of the things that is most interesting to me um, is how the, the different uh, animals represented by the letters interact with each other. Like at first it seems, you know, fairly straightforward. You've got, you know, a, a new letter and a new whimsical creature, but then when you get to the evil, he uh, addresses one of the, the previous character, the Dally, he speaks to him 
So there's a conversation there. And the previous, uh, the previous creatures all had, you know, maybe a single stanza in an illustration, but the evil has uh, several pages, like 14 stanzas of plain text. And the subject matter is decidedly grimmer. I mean, I think one of the phrases is the invisible filaments of death. So, so tell me, so that, I think that's one of the things that makes this book so interesting is that it, it wrestles with some weighty issues. So maybe talk a little bit about the, the plot of, of the book. Does that, if, if you don't mind, and kind of explain kind of the journey that the, the, the Dali takes. No, that's right. So it starts out just kind of laying the table of here are some mammals, here are some poems. Here are these paintings, here are these letter blocks with a bunch of alliterative puns and kind of the basic setting for the entire story. But it's not really until, so you do your ABCs as a kind of introduction, and then when you get to D, you introduce the main character, the Dali, and then you introduce immediately the problem, uh, and it's the problem of evil. Uh, and that's the letter E creature, the evil, who's this blind sort of cave-dwelling ape um, who's lost his eyesight, like a, like any troglodytic animal? He's he's he doesn't see anymore, right? He only uses touch or some other senses, and yet he claims to to sing a song about the entire world, and he sings it to the Dali, and it's this ugly song uh, about how really, whenever you think you see something lively, what you really see is something that's passing away, uh, and that focus on the negative causes him to weep. Um, and see the entire cosmos as something uh, that doesn't love the creature. Right? That, that, there, that is to say, implicitly, there is no creator, there's no uh, order, and there's no sort of sense of you belong. Uh, you're completely alienated. Um, and that song is a very sad song that yeah, sort of pretty, startles pretty the Dali. <laughs> yeah, it startles the Dali. And he he slink he slinks away in sadness, feeling then, something less than gay, right? Right, and then and then the rest of the, the the rest of the book, even though you leave evil behind, the Dali is sort of in internal dialogue with with the evil's uh, worldview or conception of of the world, right? That it is this it, it is a it's a setting that prompts despair. Is that yeah? Is, and it's, that, I mean, it's the kind of, it's the sort of feeling that a lot of young people today are struggling with because oftentimes the presentation of the world is that it's basically disordered, red in tooth and claw. Um, it's not a unified whole. It's not something beautiful and meant for you. Um, I remember watching with some children a, a, a show about what it would be like if you were all gone. And the world just got to be rid and then shed off the virus that is man, you know, like that kind of thing, right? Like that's a that's a startlingly horrible thing that that kids are being exposed to implicitly and explicitly on a, a, a lot. So I wanted to take it head on, and so we the evil introduces, but then you get the falala, the gallant, and images of friendship, images of joy. Um, and really, the story unfolds with the Blug, who's this big, fat, happy ball of sunshine. He's on the cover, carrying the uh, the Dally along. Who the Dally's got little necktie ears that are blue and yellow, sort of a mixture of sadness and joy. But the Dally's just like straight up a ball of joy. Um, and I think he sort of stands in for poetry and friendship 
as a whole in one sense, but he's just a big fat friend who carries him around in a basket, like a lunch basket, literally. Uh, and, and just sort of offers him food, flowers, friendship, uh, and then just company and companionship as they journey through a whole world of mammals and poetry and, uh, and you know, good and bad, but a kind of an ordered whole of what it is to be a mammal and to be alive and, and to live well. Yeah, and I like that. I like the fact that it's uh, uh, ambitious in that way. In this, I mean, I think one of the earlier in this season we did Where the Wild Things Are and Maurice Sendak was always talking about how his goal was to help children survive childhood. And so the idea that, that children's books should take on big things and, and there should be real conflict that you're trying to, to sort out and, and, and work your way through because that's, that's present, you know? Um, well, so let me, um, let me ask you this. I know this is a book. Um, I think that, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, that began before, you even had children, right? And, and, and sort of came together in a succession of stages. Yeah, sort of, that's right. A few of the, a few of the, the poems got started when I was a very young man. Um, just in, I decided uh, I was very moved reading up on Christian humanists like Erasmus and Thomas More and others, uh, Cicero and Seneca, uh, sort of the old Roman humanists that, that writing and communication is actually an incredibly important way to um, build friendship, joy, and peace. And because you have to learn how to communicate well, and that's actually the means by which we stitch together human community, uh, human society. I mean, at least half of it, right? The other half might be the body, right? Like all food, property, friends, that stuff, uh, you know, a hug, which is also important. And that's why it's the mythical mammals. But I wanted to just I wanted to push hard on, on that. So I started practicing poetry and other things too, writing different kinds of styles in imitation of that goal, um, you know, in my little way, you know, in the evenings. And I wrote a few of the poems, but then they sat there for a long time, not really sure what to do with them. They had little moralia, they had kind of an Aesopic flavor, but also kind of more satiric and funny. Um, and and then when I went back to grad school and started studying the poetic tradition and the philosophic tradition again more deeply, I got a master's in English and a PhD in literature. I sort of realized, oh, I know what this could be a part of. Um, I understand how to string together things that seemingly shouldn't go together, but by juxtaposing them in an artful way, you actually start to lay out themes, kind of like... Uh, I mean, the old medieval beast, Jerry, can do this, but also the book of Proverbs and a lot of the collections of epigrammatic poetry where, the, you know, we're talking about a farmer here. Now you're talking about two guys fighting over a kingdom. Now you're talking about a, a pool of mud that's talking to a frog. You're like, what, what are we doing? I don't understand. But if you actually just enjoy the ride, you start to realize, oh, I see there's these themes. There's, there's an argument being made. I'm seeing a certain picture of the world through a thousand little bits of the mosaic of reality. Uh, and that's what I wanted to do. And so, well, obviously it sounds like uh, sort of the stages of education shaped the, the direction of the book, but did, uh, did having, when you did have children, did that, was, did, did, did that change the, the project in any way or inform it or, or, I mean, they uh, certainly had some uh, alpha trial uh, veto power over some things. Uh, and I knew I was taking risks. Like this is a genre buster kind of book. Um, 
you know, and I think that I, I wanted to do something of literary merit. Uh, and oftentimes everybody I really respect, like the Chaucer's, the Moors, the Shakespeare's, the Hawthorne's, the Melville's, they tend to bust the genre, right? And do something new and unexpected with a genre. And just like the evil suddenly sort of slaps you upside the head with a wet fish, like, whoa, this is, this is serious. And, and, and then, but then you're back to laughter and you're sort of, what's going on? I feel like I got turned around a little subverting expectations in a kind of surprisingly delightful way, I hope is a, is sort of a fun part of it. So testing that and seeing whether that would actually translate to an enjoyable, you know, cause the thing about doing a safe genre piece is kids are comfortable and know what it is. Uh, and so I, I, it was, they gave me great courage that I could do this because they responded very favorably to it. And other people I tested it on too, who, my, you know, my kids' friends and some of my relatives and even some people's families who, whose kids didn't know me, so there was no favoritism. So I kind of, I wanted to make sure that what I want to do is really respect a child audience as having real minds and hearts that can be addressed um, in a serious way. And, but and, they, and they give, they give great those, feedback too. I think one of the things that Sue said is that uh, kids are kids are a great audience because they're not as worried about being polite. So, I mean, if, if they, <laughs> their feedback gives you confidence, but what, speaking of lessons of humility, were there ever times when they said, Oh, like, like, this is, I, I don't get this or you've got to change that up or were they, I think that I think, yeah, there was definitely a few things where, where they were like, I don't understand what's going on here. I need a few more handholds to, to demystify certain things. And so I, I made more, uh, there's always something you can grab hold of that's obvious and you can get a feeling that there's more happening that you could think about later. But sometimes you can miss that step. And my kids were very quick to point out where that was, you know, sort of like, I don't, I need, I need something very simple and straightforward, especially my littles. Cause it's designed for the whole family. Like there's an aspect for each level and it's designed for adults too. Like my hope is that adults will enjoy rereading this to their children because they'll start to see things the way like you read a Shakespeare play 10 times and you go, Oh, I, now I see something totally new that I missed the last time. You know, there's a lot of thematic work that's, you know, it's, I don't care if people see everything I'm doing right away. And I think that's what makes it feel alive. Because when you look at something alive, you don't see the mitochondrial DNA at work. You don't note the blood flow. You don't see the, the rise and fall of their chest as they breathe. But you do, in some sense, take it in like, this person's alive. Uh, and so I, I try to write poetry and we try to make beautiful illustrations that are like that. To be like the silly mead, as dreamed by the dally. As when a herd of jiggly hamsters goes giggling across a field, or like a flabby gam of whales swimming in jello congealed, imagine a cat rolling in fat, a silly mead something or other like that. How like a buffalo heavy with lard, or like an old hound dog out in the yard. As when a plump man is unable to rise out of his chair on account of his size, picture a rat that's too fat for a trap, the silly mead's somewhere near that on the map. The silly mead flails and flops as it goes, like a floundering fish that's got air up its nose, as a jellyfish pools in the cup of the hand, 
Just so would the silly mead squish and expand. Imagine a bat that's too fat for the air, and now with the silly mead quickly compare. So silly of me to liken for you, the silly mead's far beyond simile's view. For so far you readers still haven't a clue whether this silly beast has got one eye or two. Except that whatever that silly mead's not, what a silly degree of fat he has got. Matt, I want to kind of follow up on that question, but ask it sort of in a similar way. Ben, how is having kids influence uh, writing the book? I'm kind of curious, though, about, you know, we in a lot of our podcasts, we talk a lot about um, the experience of reading to our kids. So I wonder, as a children's book author, um, has that affected how you approach children's books and how you, I mean, literally read to your kids at all? You mean, has the experience of writing the book done that for me or vice versa? Yeah, yeah, has, has, has writing a book changed the way you look at other books? I mean, uh, for one, how you... yeah, I, I, it has in a number of ways. I mean, the one jumps out first is just admiration. <laughs> I know how much work went into this thing. Now. Right. <laughs> so when I see something and you read it and you go like, eh, you know, I don't know if I like that. You know, actually I'm much more like, wow, they, I'm not sure it's my favorite, but I really, I see the craft. I respect this. So I, I have more of an eye for the details because there's so many questions that have to be settled. Uh, and then you have to ask, well, what would be the most meaningful settlement here that would sort of contribute to the themes and help the reader enjoy it. And, and so I tend to respect the artful details and just the sheer craft of having pulled one off. Um, that's a big one. And then in terms of reading them out loud, I really wanted to, to I, I lavish this thing with illustrations. You mentioned the evil. That is the one page without illustrations in the entire work. Mm-hmm. Cause his is a, is a kind of blind take. It's a, it's a, it's a dark, grim, unillustrated take it doesn't shine with any light uh so we gave him the only two pages of unadorned pro or unadorned and it's almost prose it's got a beat but it's a very irregular broken up meter um it's kind of a chaotic poem but all the rest are poems of different kinds of rhythm and and structure but i think that's something that i really love about reading aloud when you can read aloud musical lines of poetry Prose is fine, and prose has its own elegance. But I do think there is something that is uh, just incredibly humblingly human about incorporating rhythm and rhyme into and structure uh, and shape to words uh, that accommodates our enfleshed character. That we're we're mammals; we see things with our five senses and the sense the sensation of things and I find that to be an incredibly uh, underdeveloped literary form for children today. There's classics. You can go back and read books uh, or there's very simple poems, but there's not something that both can be read at a younger level, but scales up uh, the way I think Alice in Wonderland, which has a lot of quotes and notes in this book uh, or the way um, uh, a lot of the, uh, the sort of, uh, 19th century poets and uh, pushed hard to have an upper register, even though it was geared at children. Did any of the, uh, the, the, the those oh, the illustrations are amazing. Did it, was there ever a time when an illustration 
preceded uh, a, a creature or description. There's that did all did all the creatures come first, and then you tried to bring them to life with the illustrations, or was there ever a way that it worked the other way? No, it was always so. We have a huge Google Doc of like 105 pages of uh, like discussion about how to frame the art, but the art was always designed uh to follow the word so in the beginning is the word uh and then the words made flesh right and i think there's there's something to that uh that, that you, you illustrate what is and so we worked from the word and then we went uh through and and you know i was listening to one of your podcasts you were talking about it was funny uh about how children's poetry you know they don't like to let the illustrator go wild and do things. And I was laughing, feeling sort of slightly indicted, like, Hey, you guys are talking about me, <laughs> but, 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 uh, I, you know, I was, I was very, um, intent on getting just the right image with just the right symbology and semiotics. Um, that because the, the paintings actually are a fundamental part of the storytelling because it's epigrammatic and episodic. And the, a lot of the, the, the meaning and the plot unfolds in these sort of parenthetical asides in the poems and, uh, and then in the illustrations themselves. So we went back and forth very carefully and we structured all the illustrations after the initial spine of the, of the poetry. Was, was there ever a, a time when, in that conversation when uh, he said, how am I supposed to rep represent this or like this, or this, this, yeah. this, 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 you've really stopped me here or the, yeah, that's right. No, there were a few where he's like, yeah, that's not going to be possible. <laughs> right. There's no way I could fit that all into this frame or, or, you know, and oftentimes he would, he would, you know, give great feedback in terms of, you know, what was possible, how to do X or Y. Um, but, but also, I mean, I, we learned, we spent a year doing, uh, cartoons together to practice before we did this because we knew this was you know kind of a much more of a high level high stakes thing uh and we were going to be committing a lot of his time and oil and painting canvas and studio time so we decided to do pen and ink and computer color cartoons for a year one a week almost uh to, so we could get into communication and get in sync so what I wanted in my words. And we learned a ton that year was invaluable because I would put something together on a file and then he would put it together. Like, no, that's, I felt like the, the lady from uh, love song of J. J. Alfred proof. Like, that's not it at all. That's not what I meant <laughs> at all. You know, like, so there was a lot of uh, uh, back and forth, but we came to know each other's mind uh, very closely. And I learned what he needed to see an image. And so like building those files was actually, exhausting but fun because i would say okay here are three impressions paintings that sort of get the emotional palette feel of what i want here is uh, a piece by tchaikovsky and a minuet by you know uh, mozart that kind of gets to the sort of joyful tone or the sad tone or the the middling tone here is five images of this creature that i would like the body position to somehow mirror these sorts of movements Et cetera, et cetera. Like we would go down to bits and parts of the thing and build up files, both tonally and spatially together and, and get it right and go back and forth with drafts before we put, put it on, on canvas. 
So it was a lot of work. Yeah, I'm imagining a, an edition of this book 50 years out that includes all of your guys' Google Doc notes and, and back and forth emails. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the complete annotated edition. <laughs> I, I, will, I, will, uh, I will hope and pray for that day. <laughs> that the book is that successful. Let's yeah. hope. M mildly amusing ephemera or something like that. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, well, we've, we've talked about the, uh, the, the illustrations and the, the poems, but really that's only about half of, of the book itself. The, the, the back half, almost an entire half of the book is, is the glossary and the activities. And I, I feel like we, we've got to talk about that because Nick is always very interested in children's books as activity primers. So, so I feel like he's probably, he's probably got lots of questions about that. So. Yeah, go ahead, please. Do you want me to just start talking or you guys have a question about it? or? Whichever. Yeah, we'll talk about that, um, that sort of decision in terms of the form and kind of format of the book to have it be almost two parts. There's the main kind of narrative that walks through the alphabet, but then you also have this, this glossary um, at the end. So yeah, just, I mean, just kind of run with that in terms of yeah, what, so what went into it, that. And... It's, an, it's an integrated whole, even though it looks kind of funny and gaseous. If you think about the very first two poems, which uh, sort of have a nod to the romantics, the age of innocence and experience, and there's sort of light and dark and sort of easy breezy and then heavy and, and dark. And the one's called, Oh, What Creatures? And it's sort of formless and very light. And then the other one's about being afraid of the dark and it's, it's got a lot of form and structure and, and it's highly crafted. Uh, and, um, and the, the ones, they're each ghosting off of, poems and uh different writings from the tradition and that's kind of the way that the beginning is has a more easily engaged illustrated uh straightforward presentation and then you cut to the glossary and it says okay this is sort of a big kid land now but i think you can do it kids you just gotta you know you know enter in and then there's a glossary with terms and words from the poems or vocabulary building but they're also those those glossary you can read the whole glossary straight and it actually works like a kind of strange episodic dialogue about the liberal arts the western tradition and uh, um, and even philosophy and good healthy psychology um and uh but it also the, the 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 definitions that are tied to the poems from the words wind up being interpretive clues to help people who want to start unpacking the inner and deeper meanings of the poetry. Um, so that's, that's a pretty bold move to, to commit to sort of designing a puzzle, you know, with the expectation uh, <laughs> that the kids are going to, going to want to solve it. Do you uh, have yeah. ex experience in, in your own childhood? Did you pour over glossaries as a child or, or were, were you like a, an appendix kid or what did, did you use those kind of referential tools or, you know, things in the back of books? Yeah. I mean, I loved, um, the, I loved like looking in encyclopedias and dictionaries and even, you know, the sort of online Encarta CD-ROM. How about dating myself that way? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I always thought you're speaking people, my language, man. Yeah, the, yeah. I, I thought those things were fascinating. They wouldn't hold my attention for long, but I certainly wanted to dip into them. Oh, I was, but, I was, I was not a, I was an immersive uh, Encarta like user. Yeah, right. No, I mean, I would do it, I, and uh, but I also like, you know, the different kinds of um, uh, 
you know, sort of puzzler books like choose your own adventure books, um, seek and find. I love the old, uh, you know, sort of, uh, um, uh, I spy games and those sorts of things. So, uh, but also so much of literature is two dimensional. There's the words that are telling the thing that's illustrated. And then there's like a wink to parents. That's one level up. And that is, frankly, very reductive. <laughs> There's so much more you can do in one speech act. You can communicate four or five things at once. And teaching people that is actually, I scratch my head going, I know this can be done because I've been studying these brilliant literary masters. And I even see it in some children's books that are not well understood, uh, but they're beloved. And you go, well, how do I you know, teach this, not just do it, but teach it. And I thought that by introducing a lot of these sort of like the seek and find game, then there's the alliterative game, which actually has, um, there's a lot of uh, alliterative puns in the, in the letter blocks, but those actually have uh, thematic significance to many of them. Um, and then the, the, the glossaries themselves are actually a dialogue between Dr. Johnson's dictionary, Webster's dictionary, and then I give my own glosses on the texts. So I just wanted people to start thinking more cleverly because I think that's one of the primary things poetry and literature should be doing is training up uh, what used to be called the Chaucer called it the good mother wit, you know, without which all other learning is half lame, said Thomas More, the author of Utopia, right? Like all learning needs to be able to see the around the corner, see how this could be viewed in three different ways. And that's part of how to present yourself. That's how to communicate. That's how to see and understand what you're looking at in the sciences, in life, in professional life, in social life, in love life, in family life. So I think that nimbleness of mind is one of those really important parts of poetry and the arts generally that some people know, but don't know how to articulate, uh, and very few people know how to, to teach it. Um, and it's sort of like, if you're a genius, you get it, and you're just one of those guys who gets it, right? Well, good for you. Well, I actually think it's teachable and has been taught many times in our tradition, and I wanted to sort of put together a book that raised, raised the hackles, sort of caused a little no. sort of prickles like something more is going on here yeah, yeah no i think it's i mean it, like i said it's it's a bold move i mean it, it kind of reminds me of those uh those birthday parties you'd go to and, and they would have set out a whole range of elaborate things and activities and then it's just a bunch of boys sort of like shoving each other in the corner and ignoring all the things <laughs> but then but then the, the miraculous thing is then somebody tries one of them out and then all of a sudden everybody's doing it and you think oh no like this is they're like I, I'm glad that I I put the effort in, uh, right. and and that I I didn't uh, that I the, the, like the level of them that, that I thought highly enough of like a, a children as an audience and as participants to think that they're up for the challenge. Yeah, and and I also I I also think of you know my hope is kids will read this book and then they'll read it again as an adult to their children. And they will get to read this book on a completely different level because I, I embedded the kind of symbolic irony and the sorts of older discourses that are right there, right alongside a children's poetry book that are in there. Uh, and my hope is that 
this book, like a good friend, can be your friend, not just in your childhood, but in your adulthood too, um, as you read it to the next generation. So in one sense, it's not just a children's book. I, I wanted to, I wanted to, it to be a family book that can be enjoyed up and down the, the experience. Ladder. No, I mean, and as I, I think that's something that we're pretty interested in as, as people that grew up reading books and now are reading to our kids, the idea of books is sort of a, like a generational legacy, I think is, is really important. I love that phrase of a, a family book too. Like we always talk about children's books, but that captures so much more of the, the kind of multi-dimensionality of good children's literature and children's stories. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that makes sense. And I think in some ways um, that's, that's a, uh, something that the, I guess, bookstores could learn from, you know, Blockbuster, you know, there's a, there's a family movie section and that it's a communal activity. It's not, it's not just, you know, for the younger audience, you know, in, in the way, so in the way that, you know, this is just the, the kitty lit section, um, that it really is uh, a larger community is participating in it. Yeah. And so I tried to lace it with some serious literary quality, but, you know, a lot of tetrameter, you know, I don't push too hard on complex rhyming structures a couple times just to let the big kids know that I know what I'm doing in that department. <laughs> you know, like, if you want them to take you seriously every once in a while, you have to flex your muscle like I actually can do more. You know, so just keep looking, you know, but I, 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 you guys pointed out, it's a bold move in one sense. And I had, I, I, I've had to endure a kind of risk, which is the first blush of the book. People are like, I don't know what this is. Uh, and, 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 but what I've been getting is I've been getting stronger and stronger reviews and more and more it's like building as opposed to like trickling out, but like, it's people are sitting down with the book and getting to know it. And then they're like, Oh, I actually, but I mean, who reads not that I, and I don't put myself on this level, but, but in imitation, like a child before his father, who reads a Shakespeare play the first time without preparation and go like, Oh, oh that was just super easy and simple. Right. Like, no, it's something you have to acquire the taste. And I decided to take that risk. You know, that's another part of being a father. I didn't, a lot of books are great, but, I don't want to dumb things down. I actually want to invite my children up a step into friendship with me as an adult. Uh, and I think the book tries to do that too. And I love that it, it, one of the things I've really loved as a, as a parent and uh, kind of watching my kids read is that you see that innate desire in kids, I think. And w one of the things I've really thankfully learned is to embrace the the kids desire for repetition in books like that. Really? We're going to read this for the 14th time, right. <laughs> but you, you can see, you can, if you pay it to, like when I look at my literally look at my daughter's eyes, when she's reading a book multiple times in a row, she's clearly like scanning on different levels and different layers. She's looking at, sometimes it's more, um, you know, her reciting the word. Sometimes it's more the, the, uh, the illustrations, different parts of it. So you can, I, I think there's like a, almost an innate, tendency in kids to want to go after those yeah. different levels and perspectives on a book. So it's or over, or over the book again and again. Right. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes they detach another mode is they're not really listening. They know what you're saying, but they're actually taking the moment to reflect on what has been said. Yeah. And then at the end you're done and you, they weren't quite paying attention, but they know the poem so well that they go and they ask some very insightful question or give like a very beautiful observation. Right. Oh, 
you're in that mode. You're in the reflective mode. Nice. You know, cool. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, among the, uh, sort of baffled responses and insightful questions. Has anybody ever asked, are all these uh, creatures really mammals? <laughs> so like, yeah. like, because it's, it's, it's a book, you know, with the, such an extensive glossary that's very uh, fixated with, with definition. But some of these, like, some of the creatures seem kind of reptilian or there's some sea monsters in there. And so. Yeah. Yeah. No, explain yourself, man. Yeah, that's right. The, the, uh, the insistence upon not allowing it to devolve into zoological technicality uh, <laughs> was actually purposeful. So, for instance, the Umanus, the letter O creature, is in part, you know, the all of the creatures are admixtures of different things, not necessarily animals. Like the Umanus is part cloud uh, and part. Uh, 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 Mexican salamander, an endangered species. And in fact, there's a whole ecology piece we're not even talking about. It has to do with a lot of uh, endangered uh, and extinct creatures and sort of how we're, as mammals, we're actually sourced to be harmonized with the earth we live on, right? But so, but I deliberately sort of jammed the jammed the signals and said, yeah, no, we're, we're no. not going to freak out about that. The mammalian right. part is real, but it's also... It's, I want you to not, I want to rest you from just the literal question and ask why would we consider the mammalian case? And if you go to the, um, if you go to the glossary, there's one of the, the longest passages of the entire glossary. It's, it's a treatise on the mammal uh, and its symbology and what it means to be a mammal and having to do with essentially uh, the loving nature of humankind. That we actually are meant for love, uh, we're meant for um, hugging and f friendly warmth, uh, and um, we're meant for um, uh, also reflection. Uh, so, I, the guy who invented mammals, his uncle wrote a book about self knowledge, and I just launch into that in the in the mammals section of the glossary because I was like, this is an image of what it is to be a, a, a human mammal. So yeah, I, I I definitely cheat. There's a couple. Uh, there's one that's half blue whale, but half squid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, essentially, this is this is a book intended to ruin the game, animal, vegetable, mineral, and <laughs> that's right forever. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. What? Yeah. One's a a combination of the four seasons: a squid, uh, a blue whale, and a whirling dervish. You know, sort of. Like essentially it's, I'm showing the, the delightful freedom of poetry, which is another thing that's so great about the arts is you, you have this incredible liberty of mind uh, to play. And I think that rests the mind and, uh, and takes us again, seriously and humbly as we can't always be super duper serious and uh, always following all the rules. Like uh, you gotta, you gotta have some downtime to rest. Uh, and that's a kind of rule in itself of, you know, misrule. <laughs> All right. Um, well, Matt, thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast. And um, where's the me. best place? If people are interested in getting the book, where do you have a preferred place for them to find it? Or I purchase? don't. Um, uh, they're welcome to go to mythicalmammals.com, my website, um, where they can uh, find a jump pages to all of their preferred purchasing sites. Um, and you can also get mugs and t-shirts and prints of the artwork and you can contact me and 
Um, so that's sort of the easiest place is my landing page, which is uh, mythicalmammals.com. But it's also, it's on IndieBound and Amazon. Uh, but, they, from, but they won't have that same mythical swag. That's right. No, they will <laughs> only get the mythical swag from, from mythicalmammals.com. Hey, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Thousand and One Good Nights. If you want to learn more about this book and other bedtime stories, check out our website at a thousand and one goodnights.com. That's one zero zero one goodnights.com. Be sure to sign up for our monthly email newsletter to get updates about upcoming seasons and other new content. Finally, please help us out by rating the show on iTunes. This helps spread the word about the show and get it in front of new listeners each week. <laughs>